All right, welcome back to Hellspan. This is part one of a three-part series of the mind-gut connection by Dr. Emerin Mayer. Dr. Mayer has studied brain-body interactions for the last 40 years. He is the executive director of the Oppenheimer Center for Neurobiology of Stress and Resilience and the co-director of the Digestive Diseases Research Center at UCLA. His research has been supported by the NIH for the past 25 years, and he is considered a pioneer and world leader in the area of the brain-gut-microbiome interactions. So in part one, I'm going to be talking about a wide variety of topics, including the emergence of the gut microbiome as this kind of new field, uh, what happens when your gut microbiome falls out of health, the role micro microbes play in certain things like autism spectrum disorder, neurodegenerative diseases, and depression, the information highway for gut brain traffic, the role of serotonin, this quote-unquote microbe speak in, and how it developed. Uh, I'm also going to be talking about enemas and also the immune system and our gut health. So if that sounds interesting, uh, continue listening. So Dr. Mayer kind of starts out this book by describing our digestive system, which can be kind of interchanged with the word gut, and how our gut is much more delicate, complex, and powerful than we once assumed. So our gut has capabilities that surpass all our other organs and even rivals our brain. Our gut even has our own nervous system, and it's known in scientific literature as the enteric nervous system, or ENS, and it's often referred to in the media as this quote-unquote second brain. And this second brain of our enteric nervous system is actually made up of 50 to 100 million nerve cells, as many as are contained in your spinal cord. So really, this kind of the emerging treatment or emerging uh, evidence that our our gut microbe is actually our second brain. So you might hear it referred to as that. And the gut is also the largest storage facility for serotonin in our body. So 95% of our body's serotonin is actually stored in these warehouses in our stomach. And serotonin, as you know, probably is a signaling molecule that plays a huge role within the, the brain-gut axis. It's not only important for the kind of peristalsis uh, coordination contraction that moves food through our digestive system, but it also plays a crucial role in such vital functions like sleep, appetite, pain sensitivity, mood, and overall well-being. So remember again, 95% of our serotonin is actually in our gut. And I'm going to get back to serotonin uh, later in this episode. So the gut and the brain are closely linked through this bidirectional signaling pathway that includes nerves, hormones, and inflammatory molecules. Rich sensory information generated in the gut reaches the brain, and you can think of this as a gut sensation or gut feeling. And the brain sends signals back to the gut to adjust its function. You can think of this as the gut reaction. So the close interactions of these pathways plays a crucial role in the generations of emotions and an optimal gut function. These two are intricately linked, and you could think of it as this yin and yang. So the yin part is kind of this gut sensation, gut feeling, where your stomach is sending signals to your brain. And this yang part is this gut reaction where these emotions from our brain are getting sent back to this gut. So it's really this bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain. 
So the, the dawn of the gut microbiome. So really just this past decade, maybe these past two, two decades, where the gut microbiome is actually being recognized uh, in literature and in science. And this is actually helped by President Barack Obama when he announced the National Microbiome Initiative in May 13th of 2016, where he kind of started getting more funds out for microbe and microbiome research. Um, and, and just within, like I said, these past two decades, we're seeing how, mu- how important it is, uh, how important the gut microbiome is. And we know when the gut microbiota and brain access, uh, what happens when it falls out of balance. So there is growing evidence that the mix of gut microbes fall out of its healthy state, stable state in several gut diso- uh, disorders, and this state is called dysbiosis. So one of the most serious and best characterized states of dysbiosis has been reported in, in uh, a small number of antibiotic treatment uh, treated hospital patients who develop severe diarrhea and gut inflammation following the treatment with antibiotics. So we know antibiotics, if you have an infection, it's really good, but it's also killing out your own gut microbes. And this ends up developing, uh, you end up developing a disease called uh, C. diff, Clostridium difficile colitis. And it's usually after someone takes uh, a long course of broad-spectrum antibiotics because we're, wipe- we're wiping out our own microbes and we're uh, allowing the C. diff to kind of flourish. And these people have awful, awful diarrhea. And the extent and precise role of the dysbiosis state has also occurred in other uh, diseases like uh, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, and also irritable bowel syndrome. And we're also seeing this emerging role of microbes and as I mentioned in the introduction, how it can play a role in autism spectrum disorder, in neurodegenerative disorders, and in depression. So there has been a dramatic continuous increase in the reported prevalence of autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, from 4.5 in 10,000 children in 1966 to 1 in 68 children aged 8 years in 2010. So this huge, massive spike in uh, children developing ASD. And as ASD rose, so did other diseases linked to a change in our gut microbiota, including autoimmune and metabolic disorders. So we're seeing this kind of correlation between ASD and also these changes in our gut microbiota, like autoimmune diseases and metabolic disorders. And changes in our lifestyle, diet, and in the widespread use of antibiotics have been implicated as possible causes. So how about for neurodegenerative diseases? Well, recent research shows that that the enteric nervous system, again, this kind of like nervous system of our gut, undergoes the nerve degeneration typical of Parkinson's long before classic symptoms of the disease appear, and that changes in the patient's gut microbiota composition accompany the the disease. So we're seeing these, so we know the classic symptoms of Parkinson's disease, right? Tremors, rigidity, uh, akinesia, and this kind of like uh, shuffling gait, and we're seeing that there's similar changes that are going on in our enteric nervous system. Okay, finally about depression. So the gut microbiota has also been linked to depression. So we know today that, again, 95% of our gut's uh, gut contains the, the serotonin, the neuromodulator neurotransmitter serotonin, and it's actually contained in these specialized cells in the gut, and these serotonin-containing cells are influenced by what we eat, by chemicals released from certain species of our gut microbes, and by signals that the brain sends to them, informing them about our emotional state. 
So I'm going to be discussing serotonin a little bit later. But again, remember, 95% of the body serotonin comes from uh, our gut, and it can potentially play a role in, in depression, also a role in autism and Parkinson's disease as well. So we first need to understand how our brain communicates with our gut and how our gut communicates with our brain and how our gut microbes influence um, both of these interactions. So to skip a little bit ahead, we know we have this information highway for this gut-brain kind of traffic. And the main highway is via the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve, which is our 10th cranial nerve, plays a particularly important role in communicating gut sensations to the brain. The great majority of gut cells and receptors that encode gut sensations are closely linked to the brain via the vagus nerve. And much of the signaling of our gut microbiota to the brain relies on this pathway as well, so via the vagus nerve. And he tells a cool anecdotal story of how important the vagus nerve actually is in communicating between our brain and our gut. So he tells a story about a man named George Miller. So during his training at UCLA, he meets this man named George Miller. George Miller had long suffered from a large ulcer in his duodenum. And he, also, he would always have these flare-ups and have terrible stomach pain and have these bleeding in his stomach. And after he had been suffering from these symptoms for years, the decision was made by the GI doctor to refer him to a surgeon to actually cut his vagus nerve, thereby removing its ability to stimulate acid production in the stomach. So in Miller's case, his surgery had been successful in that he no longer had an ulcer, but the price he paid was enormous. So from that point on, <clears throat> after his vagus nerve was suffered, uh, uh, severed, he suffered an array of unpleasant gut sensations. He felt full even after uh, a small meal and endured constant nausea and vomiting, cramps, belly pain, and diarrhea, among other symptoms. He was also having stuff like heart palpitations, sweating, lightheadedness, extreme fatigue, um, all of this coming from the cutting of the vagus nerve. Today we know about the complexity of gut sensations and the crucial role the vagus nerve plays in transmitting these signals to the brain regions like the hypothalamus and limbic brain regions, which in turn influence a wide range of vital functions like pain, appetite, mood, and even cognitive functions. So really, this vagus nerve is vitally important for the connection between the gut and the brain. How about the role of serotonin? So I mentioned I was going to come back to serotonin, and I want you to think back to a time you actually had food poisoning. So you, let's say you're traveling abroad, you go out to a nice meal, and you're having this awful stomach pain, and then a few hours later, you're just having like nonstop vomiting, nonstop diarrhea, you most likely had food poisoning. So food poisoning occurs when you accidentally ingest or drink a meal contaminated with a pathogenic virus, uh, bacterium, or toxin. Uh, It's often E. coli, right? E. coli is the main pathogen. And you get this uh, nonstop vomiting diarrhea. And the reason this actually occurs is it's actually an inbuilt survival mechanism. So when the gut detects enough of a toxin or pathogen, your enteric nervous system issues this evacuation order to your entire GI tract aimed at expelling the toxin from both ends of your digestive tract. And the reason this occurs is due to the serotonin. 
So the reaction is driven by serotonin-containing cells in the upper gut, which are particularly important in the generation of these gut sensations. The thing is, it's due to a release of a more concentrated serotonin release. So normally serotonin is released, but in smaller quantities. But when you have this food poisoning, you get this exaggerated, more concentrated serotonin release, and that leads to the vomiting and intensive uh, bowel movements. So that's a little bit about food poisoning and, and the role of serotonin. And serotonin really is the ultimate gut-brain gut signaling molecule. Serotonin-containing cells are intricately connected to both our little brain in the gut and our big brain. So this gut-based serotonin signaling system plays a key role in linking events in the gut related to food, intestinal microbes, and certain medications to the activity of our digestive system and to the way we feel. On the other hand, the small amount of serotonin contained in nerves in the gut and in the brain play crucial roles as well. So, serotonin-containing nerves in the gut play a key role in regulating the peristaltic reflex, while clusters of nerve cells in the brain send their signals to, the most, to most regions of the brain, exerting an influence over a wide range of vital functions like appetite, like pain, sensitivity, and also mood. So I discussed this already about how serotonin plays a lot bigger role than just peristalsis. It plays a huge role in other things as well. So the next section is about food as information. So when we eat, the massive amount of gut-related information being sent to the brain, uh, which includes a barrage of messages from the trillions uh, of microbes living in our gut, gives the gut-brain axis a unique and unexpected role in modulating our health and well-being, our feelings, and even our decision-making, as we will discuss later. So when we consider the scientific complexities of the various gut sensors and the vagus nerve, together with the functions in the digestive process, and place them into the overall context of our gut sensations, a revolutionary picture of our eating habits emerges. So not only is our digestive tract able to absorb most of the nutrients and calories contained in a meal, but the gut's sophisticated surveillance system can actually analyze food's nutritional content and at the same time extract the information needed for its optimal digestion. So our gut is active, uh, uh, kind of like always actively surveilling the food that we're eating. And most remarkably, the gut's intricate sensory system begins getting this information the second the food enters our mouth when taste receptors on our tongue and enteric nerves in our esophagus begin transmitting information about what we're ingesting and it continues to do so until the food ends up in our colon and our gut does all of this without interfering any way with our daily functioning so it's doing it all by itself and these hundred trillion chattering microbes in our intestine again are doing it by themselves and in other words, when it comes to collecting, storing, and analyzing and responding to massive amounts of information, the gut-brain axis is a true supercomputer. <clears throat> and these, again, these 100 trillion cells transmitting a massive amount of information, more than we know. And we're going to see how important the gut microbes play in the connection between what we eat and also how we feel. So I, I move to the next uh, chapter, and it's all about microbes speak. So microbes speak is kind of this term that, that Dr. Mayer came up with. Um, but before we talk about 
microspeak, uh, the idea of microspeak and how it developed. I'm going to be discussing a little bit more about Dr. Mayer. So uh, when Dr. Mayer was doing his fellowship, he and a bunch of other scientists were kind of looking at these gut peptides in, in frogs and in, in other animals as well. So Dr. Mayer, he would actually go to these slaughterhouses in Los Angeles and he returned with these containers of pig intestines and he would actually purify the gut peptides themselves. So he would kind of test these gut peptides and see what they're doing. So when he injected one of the gut peptides, gastrin, he observed that the animal's stomach started ramping up its secretion of uh, hydrochloric acid or HCl. And then there's another peptide called secretin, which turned on uh, secretion of digestive juices from the pancreas. And there's also another peptide called somatostatin, which turned off both gastrin and secretin. So he was actually harvesting these peptides, injecting them, and seeing what was actually going on um, and observing the function of these peptides. And the story uh, took an unexpected turn in the early 1980s when a group of scientists at the NIH, uh, led by two scientists named Roth and LaRoth, they wanted to find out if microorganisms were capable of producing the same signaling molecules that other researchers had discovered in frogs, pigs, dogs, and other animals. So these two scientists, they grew different microorganisms in a, in a broth container and separated the microorganisms from the broth and tested them for the presence of insulin, another hormone. And I've talked about insulin all the time, so I won't go over insulin. Uh, but what they were seeing was that uh, in both the cells and in the broth, they found molecules similar to human insulin, similar enough that the molecules stimulated lab uh, grown fat cells from rat to suck away energy from sugar. And this dramatic result suggested for the first time that insulin did not originally appear in animals, as biologists had thought, but was already present in a more prim primitive single cell organism that arose a billion years ago. So I'm kind of going on a tangent about uh, these, these different peptides and hormones and, and uh, insulin and it just kind of goes to show that some of these endogenous molecules have been around long, long before any humans have. So Roth and LaRoth summarized their findings in, a, in the New England Journal of Medicine, writing that the signaling molecules that our endocrine system and brain use to communicate probably originated in microbes. So that is the point of me telling you this whole story about the gut peptides, is that this has been a, around long, long before we were here. This kind of gut brain kind of communication, the endocrine system, it's been around uh, since, you know, six billion years ago, which I'll talk about a little later. So Dr. Mayer was kind of inspired by these two researchers, and Dr. Mayer actually decided to write his own paper. So he wrote his own paper, and he titled it, Are Gut Peptides the Words of a Universal Biological Language? And he published this paper in 1991, and in the article, he kind of proposed that these signaling molecules represent the words of a universal biological language used not only by the gut, but also by the nervous system, including the little brain in the, and the big brain, and by the immune system. So humans were not the only organisms used in this cellular communication system. Science has demonstrated that frogs, plants, and even microbes living inside our intestines use it as well. So all these animals, all these organisms, 
use this gut-brain signaling uh, access. Now, unfortunately, Dr. Mayer and these other researchers were way ahead of their time. Um, like I said, just within this past decade, maybe even two decades, uh, is the gut microbe kind of being recognized and appreciated. So, like I said, unfortunately, the time was not yet ripe for the rest of the scientific world to realize the impact of these early discoveries. And it would take years for people to actually kind of recognize their discovery. So I'm going to get back to the microbe speak in just a second, but I'm going to take a quick tangent on enemas. So he has this passage about uh, enemas for, for a while, and he kind of talks about the history of enemas and how in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, people believed that rotting food in the intestines formed toxins, which then moved through the body via the circulatory system and caused fevers, and this causes disease. And to heal such ills, you kind of have to drive out your excrements. And even in the ancient Mesopotamia, um, there are these human civilizations called the Sumerians who also applied enemas to expel disease. So did the Babylonians, uh, Assyrians. Um, so this has been around for forever. And in East Asia, China, Korea, healers were also concerned with the dangers of this unclean bowel. So they prescribed enemas and irrigations to manage the dangers of this internal dampness. Um, so he kind of has this tangent of enemas and even talks about how Hippocrates, who obviously the Hippocratic Oath is named after, documented enemas to treat fevers and other bodily uh, disorders. Hippocrates is also credited with this profound statement that all diseases started in the gut. And ancient Greeks adopted the Egyptian idea that rotting food inside us leads to disease-causing toxins, uh, which brought about the idea of the four humors that had been uh, that had to be kind of balanced. So I talked about the four humors in the Cancer Code. Uh, there are these kind of four humors that had to be balanced, and this idea was actually held throughout the the Middle Ages. Um, he also talks about how our microbes there are microbes out there that don't play by the rules so he goes into the example of like toxoplasma gondi and and these other parasites and and, and viruses and microbes that um kind of like create a bad environment in our gut and cause problems so i won't get too much into the into the details um so yeah it's kind of weird he has this random tangent about uh, enemas and the history of enemas and all that um, but I do want to go back to the microbe speak, which I was talking about earlier. So microbe speak was this, is this kind of sophisticated biochemical language, and he kind of coined the term. And why exactly do our gut microbes in our, in our brains need such a sophisticated communication system? And how did this microbe speak develop? So to answer these questions, we kind of have to go back in time like really far back in time, approximately 4 billion years ago. Um, so he kind of talks about the quote-unquote dawn of the microbe speak. So approximately 4 billion years ago, life first appeared on Earth uh, as these single-celled microorganisms, the archaea. And over time, through trial and error, these microbes gradually perfected this ability to communicate with each other. And to accomplish this, they had to manufacture signaling molecules to send signals along because obviously they, they couldn't talk. So they had to send signals with receptor molecules to serve as like uh, 
decoding mechanisms for these signals. So um, we see this today, actually, like many of these signaling molecules that were uh, done by the archaea are very similar to what's going on today uh, with our gut and its use of the enteric nervous system to communicate with our brain. So he's seeing this kind of parallel. And gradually, the animals and microbes develop develop this symbiotic relationship. And the microbes found ways to kind of transfer genetic information to their host animals. And this information provided the host animal with a range of molecules that they were lacking, but which the microbes had actually learned to manufacture during billions of years of trial and error. And over millions of years, as primitive marine animals evolved into more complex creatures, they developed simple nervous systems in the form of nerve networks surrounding their primitive guts, not very different from the networks of the enteric nervous system that surround our guts today. So this may seem a little dry, but he's, he's, he's kind of going over the history of how exactly the gut microbiome developed um, and how these simple nerve networks and their signaling molecules kind of enabled the primitive animals of millions of years ago to respond to ingested food in in similar ways that our, our guts do today. So that's just a, a quick a quick uh, a quick history of of that gut microbiome uh, and microbe speak interaction. And just to finish it off, this new symbiosis between the creatures and their resident microbes led many to benefit for for both of us. So like I said, it's a symbiosis relationship. So the animals kind of gained the ability to digest certain foods, obtain vitamins that they couldn't synthesize themselves, and evade or expel toxins and other uh, dangers in their environment. And the microbes in our digestive system gained and contained uh, a good environment in which they could thrive and, and kind of transport from one location to another. So that collection of Microbes can be viewed as the earliest version of the gut microbiota in your intestine. So that's kind of like the history of the gut microbiome, how it developed from 4 billion years ago. It started out with these signaling molecules and then this develop of a symbiotic relationship. Uh, uh, so I, I thought that was pretty interesting how, how he kind of goes into the history, like the deep history of how, how microbes speak uh, came about. Now, I'm going a little long, but i just like to finish on the immune system and how the immune system plays a role uh, and kind of relates to our gut health. So as we turn to the communication channels of the microbes speak, let's start by looking at the role of the immune system in the gut microbiome signaling to the brain. So one means, of commu- one means of communication involves specialized immune cells known as dendritic cells. So dendritic cells are located just under the inner lining of our gut. And they have these quote-unquote tentacles that kind of extend into the gut's interior where they communicate directly with a group of gut microbes that live near the gut wall. So these dendritic cells are type of immune cells. And on them, they have these receptors called toll-like receptors. These receptors are able to recognize various signals from benign microbes and assure our own immune system that all is well and that no defense response is necessary. Now, in contrast, when harmful or dangerous bacteria are detected through these mechanisms, they trigger an innate immune response and a cascade of inflammatory reactions in our gut wall 
to really keep the pathogen in check. So when microbes penetrate the protective mucus layer that cover the lining of the gut, the molecules of their cell walls trigger activation of our immune system cells beneath the gut lining, which then tailor the immune system response depending on whether or not or what to degree the microbe poses a, a, a danger. So one molecule you're probably familiar with is called lipopolysaccharide or LPS. Lipopolysaccharide is this component of, a, of the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria, and it's actually able to increase the leakiness of the gut, thereby facilitating the transfer of microbes to the immune system. So if you're in the health space, you've definitely heard the phrase leaky gut. Leaky gut can occur from a vast variety of, of, of different things from our environment, from the foods we eat, from like lipopolysaccharide. And in contrast to a common belief, no gut infection with a nasty uh, bacteria or virus is required to trigger such a response of our immune system. Um, however, as scientists recently found out, several other mechanisms related to our diet and the resulting alteration in the composition of our gut microbe actually come into play. So, for example, people eating high animal fat diets have an increase in the relative abundance of such gram-negative bacteria in their gut. Like, uh, like uh, he gives two examples of proteobacteria and uh, formicutes, these other gram-negative bacteria that contain the lipopolysaccharide. And therefore, people, again, with these high-fat diet have more like this chronically engaged uh, immune system activation. And we're also seeing a diet that is low in plant-based fiber reduces the abundance of another organism called Acromantia municephilia inside our gut. So Acromantia, which is now being like touted as the thing that's going to help treat type 2 diabetes, uh, it, it can help in blood glucose regulation, but it also plays another role as well. So under normal conditions, this organism plays a role in kind of regulating the quality and thickness of the mucus layer that is part of the kind of barrier separation in our gut from our immune system. And acromancia, when we are exposed to this kind of low fiber diet, we have less acromancia. So we're getting this kind of thinner mucus layer and it's creating these, this smaller barrier between our microbes and our immune system. So again, this is important why it's so important to have a good uh, high fiber diet. Um, but again, where do we see a, a diet that is high in animal fat and low in, in fiber? Obviously, it's the Western diet. This, uh, this kind of like, it's kind of like the hallmark of the North American diet, right? And we're seeing uh, the consequences of this, this massive amount of inflammation that takes place in our body because we're uh, thinning our, our mucus layer and because we're eating high-fat diet that contains uh, a lot of these gram-negative bacteria. But no matter how the gut's immune system detects microbes, it responds by producing a number of molecules, again, called cytokines. Cytokines, I've talked about uh, plenty of times in the past. It's creating this massive amount of inflammation in our body. Um, and once these cytokines are generated in the gut, these signals can also be sent to the brain. So remember the vagus nerve I was talking about earlier? Um, these cytokines can actually bind to receptors on sensory nerve terminals of the vagus nerve and send long-distance messages to regions in our brain that can do things like reduce our energy level, 
uh, increased feelings of fatigue and pain sensitivity, and even make you feel depressed. So we're seeing this information highway, again, the vagus nerve, transmitting signals from our inflamed gut up to our brain and causing things like probably brain fog and fatigue, uh, even depression. So pretty interesting there. Now, another important way um, microbial metabolites signal to the brain is via the serotonin-packed endochromaffin cells. So I talked about serotonin before. I'm going to mention it one more time. So these enterochromaffin cells, which contain the serotonin, are studied with receptors that detect a variety of microbial metabolites, including uh, short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. And we can get stuff, uh, we can get butyrate from things like uh, whole grain cereal, asparagus, um, and a lot of other vegetables as well. And some of these metabolites can increase the production of serotonin in our enterochromaffin cells, making more of this molecule available for signaling to the brain via the vagus nerve. So I mentioned how inflammation obviously is sent up to the brain via the vagus nerve. Well, we can get good information uh, from the foods we eat by sending serotonin up to the brain via the vagus nerve. So it kind of goes both ways. And it shows just how important it is to have these good microbial metabolites that you can get from uh, you know, a whole food plant-based diet. Um, so just to finish off, I'm going to read the last paragraph here. And to kind of summarize, it is becoming clear that gut microbes have an extensive and wholly unexpected influence on the appetite control systems and emotional operating systems in our brain, on our behavior, and even our minds. These invisible creatures in our digestive system have a word to say when it comes to how we feel, how we make our gut-based decisions, and how our brain develops and ages. So that finishes part one of the mind-gut connection. In part two, I'm going to be talking about intuition and also gut feelings and how life experiences uh, often affect our gut-brain access, how, how our, our how the gut kind of influences our emotions and also decision-making. So if that sounded interesting, tune in for part two. I hope you enjoyed part one. I hope you learned something. Um, I'll leave my Instagram in the episode description if you want to leave me a comment or suggestion. And uh, again, thank you for listening.